0: Gentlemen, you know what day it is. Everybody knows what day it is. It's Sunday, time for the Psychedelic Roundtable. We are joined today with Mr. Wizard, Paul. Ben, why don't you go ahead and do what we do every show and just let the people know who it is that you are?
1: Uh, I'm Benjamin C. George of BenjaminC.George.com, I'm aka Mr. Wizard. You can find the book and all the other things that I'm up to on the website and looking forward to another Sunday chat.
0: Nice. Paul, how are things with you, my friend? Anything you want to share with the audience before we get started?
2: Uh, not really. Everything's going good though.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. And as for me, I'm living the dream as always getting fired up for another week. And, uh, you know, I was going to, I've been thinking about you know, we talk a lot about different structures, parallel structures, economies, what's happening in the world. And I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this particular idea of, I've been reading quite a bit about uh, the the idea of emotions and economy. Like how do emotions factor in to economic action? And the point, the argument I want to make today is that I have seen a trend of, emotions playing a bigger and bigger part in the economy than they have in the past. And I wanna try to give an analogy in that, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, the reason companies fail is because the engineers get pushed to the wayside and the marketing team takes over. And when that happens, people no longer care about the product, they care only about that which moves the profit needle forward and that's the marketing team. I think the same thing has happened in the world of economy. We have allowed the products and services throughout the economy, be it in our country or in Europe or in any of the biggest industrialized parts of the planet, we're we're now building an economy built on emotion, built on marketing and the products and the services are failing. What do you guys think about that? Hmm.
1: I think to some extent, that's probably always been the case. I mean, ever since really mass marketing kind of took over, you know, and we've moved, you know, away from uh, industrialization into con- consumerism. Um, but I would agree with you. I think, you know, uh, it, there definitely seems to be some sort of bent where, you know, the people who thump their fist allowed us because, you know, you know, however they feel, that tends to be where a lot of marketing money is flowing these days
0: yeah i i think that
2: it's you know it's always been the case you know people make emotional connections to products you know you have like Mm -hmm. chevy versus ford bmw Mm -hmm. versus mercedes coke versus pepsi (laughs) you know always you know these these brands have been able to develop you know really strong emotional bonds with consumers and so even when they've introduced new product in the cases of, you know, like vehicles or clothing or whatever it may be, they could actually be inferior to their competition product and still, you know, get a lot of attraction because people are just emotionally tied to the brands. And so when you explode that out, like on a, on a global level and you add in stuff like a pandemic, you add in the holiday season, you add in, um, you know, inflation and all the rest of these things, those things are also emotional issues for people. They become emotional issues for people. And that'll either drive, the, you know, the economy up or down. You know, I mean, that's why they say there's an optimistic market and there's a pessimistic market, you know, because, you know, largely those things, um, to some extent, are, are based in emotion on how people are feeling and not what
0: they're thinking. Yeah, that's a good point. Welcome in, Jason. Good to see you, buddy. Hey, guys. How are you? Doing well, thanks. We, We were just talking about like, so if we continue to pull on that thread a little bit, you know, it seems to me that as a whole, rationality is being replaced by emotionality. You know, it seems to me that starting at a certain level of production, rationality, which is the medium of disciplinary society, hits a limit. Henceforth, it is experienced as a constraint and an inhibition. And this is what I want to talk about. It seems that we have, you know, there's there's limits to growth. There are limits that things people can do. But in the business world, if you're a CEO, you don't want to hear anything about limits. You don't want to hear about limits to growth. You don't want to hear about limits to productivity. And that is the turning point. I think we've hit this turning point where, we have reached this wall of rationality. And so what we are doing now is because this, because rationality is a constraint that it has, It suddenly, it seems rigid and inflexible. So at this point, emotionality has taken place and we see all these triggers out there of, of, you know, um, just very emotional people seem to be taking over the airwaves, whether it's through anger or whether it's through, you know, all these kind of wedge issues, they don't seem rational to me. They seem emotional. And it seems to me that the world we're moving in is moving in, in a very, it just seems that emotion is taking over rationality. Does that kind of make sense?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I agree. You know, um, and I think it has to do with like, like you know, Jason's working on his dad balls project, right? Where he's trying to, you know, where he wants to, you know, uh, mentor, coach, whatever you want to call it, you know, men uh, on how to become better men and better fathers, and you know, enforce or reinforce their masculinity. And in a lot of cases, where it's like you can see it as a whole, where that is, that's being suppressed, and right, so people are no longer turning to what they knew or you know what they're what their bodies are telling them, what their, you know, their, their gender role is telling them and they're falling back on emotion on so many things, right? Like it's, there's no longer this, you know, like you said, like rationale goes out the window and it's replaced by, you know, reactionary, um, behavior.
1: And at the same token, I just read that, uh, $9 billion was spent on black Friday, which is a record, for the most money ever spent. Wow.
0: Oh, wow, yeah, that's.
3: And and I saw something that said the deals were like not good at all. Like like most people were pretty underwhelmed by the the deals that were taking place, which makes you think like who spent that 9 billion, right? Like I think sometimes they throw a number out that to, to think like, oh, the masses were spending the money. I I would argue probably the majority of people, if you were to look just pure numbers, probably didn't spend on Black Friday, and a smaller section of the haves spent a lot more maybe than they normally would have.
0: I I would argue that number is bullshit. I would say that they're trying to get people to spend more money by saying, "Look at this record profits that we got!" <laughs> like I, I think I, I don't think we did spend that much. I think we're in economic decline. And mm-hmm. if you look at the way in which the media puts out information, whether it's, hey, here's the vote totals of this, or, you know, I, I don't trust the media at all. And why would I trust them to tell me the truth about the economic situation?
1: Right. And it's also the metrics of what they use to measure this. Right. Um, point. You know, those are usually moving targets, you know, in all of these different scenarios. Uh, so you know, what if, yeah, it could be 9 billion spent, but you know, what are they actually putting into that number? Is it, you know, is it, is it business to business type stuff as well as consumer type stuff? Um, You know, you need more data and then you actually have to have access to the real data and not something that's, you know, skewed for the purpose of marketing.
0: Yeah. And this gets us, this gets us right back into emotion. Like what, if you want to further the buying season, like you want to – Ben's a fisherman. You know about getting boils. Up. You want to go out there and chum the water, man. You want these boils coming up. So what better way to do that And to be like, look at all these people. You know, if you listen to any sort of ad, it's like, come down and buy your new Toyota and hurry. Like there's all this influence on like get down there now, you know. So there's so much emotion in it. What are you going to say, Jay?
3: Well, I was going to say, I mean, that's just playing off the idea that scarcity and urgency sell. Right. And that's always right. a motivating factor for people. And then I, I agree. I think it is kind of to me, I, I saw that pop up yesterday, that nine billion number. I was like, how how do they know that already? Like Friday just ended, like yeah. what companies send their numbers into something that can then aggregate like so get, clearly they can't really know that number. So it's assumptions right they' they're they're making yeah. some sort of assumptions and they're skewing those assumptions to their favor to kind of further this because to, to this point that you're driving George, we can't be rational about the data that we see we it's almost like you know because to me rationalism is the removal of emotions right like you're not going to be emotional about it like let's think rationally. but when we can't trust the the, the numbers, the ration then all of a sudden we then are driven more into the emotional piece because what is it to be rational? Well, that's to have a a baseline of understanding or a baseline of quote-unquote truth, and that's been removed. So when you don't have that baseline to work off of to say, well, this is rational, um, all of a sudden we have our emotions, and that's far easier to control. And I think at the end of the day, that's where you start seeing this more like we're, we're being conditioned for obedience right now. That's really like we're whatever it is, like we're being conditioned to obey a certain strategy or a certain way. And I think it's a lot easier to make emotional people obey than to make rational people obey.
0: Yeah, that's well put.
2: Where, where do they get those numbers from? Are, the, are those like reported from like Visa, MasterCard, American Express and Discover? Is that how they figure out the nine billion? Like what people are have charged? And then, um, and then, with the rising rate of inflation, right? Then you would think that that number would be, you know, high, right? Everything costs more, so of course that number went from whatever it was last year to nine billion dollars. But I guess the question is, is, is like, what did people get in return for their nine billion dollars? Probably not as much as they got last year or the year before.
1: Probably not. Yeah, I think I, I, I don't think they're actually getting reporting numbers. I bet you they're they're doing some you know uh statistical woo-woo stuff and saying last year there was x amount and you know there's the expectation of sales projected sales like all of these companies do and then they just took those projected sales you know increase over last year and and spit out a number that would be my guess if i had to take one
0: yeah i would have i would agree with that too It, it it's interesting to me like the I like what you said Jason about this idea of you know being being um kind of groomed to be a consumer and I think th- I think that consumption and emotions go well mm-hmm. like when you're consuming something you know if you're hungry you're going to eat something you know but when, you, when you're in a consumer mindset, you're in an emotional mindset. You know, we hear these terms like irrational exuberance or a feeding frenzy. You know, there's these terms that we use when we consume, but yet when, we're, when we are in a state of where we're uh, logical or we're rational, then we're contemplating. And we get back to what we, we talked earlier about contemplation versus consumption. And I think the last thing that can, the people that are selling you stuff want you to do is to contemplate if it's a good deal. They want you to consume. So they're preparing the environment for you to do so, which takes us full scale back to the idea of, of the world we live in really becoming this area of, of this consumer capitalism that's just feeding us meanings and emotions. They're selling so we consume meanings and emotions. You're getting away from products. You're getting away from services and just getting you into a certain state of mind.
1: And big businesses have been uh, taking advantage of this over the past at least, you know, 15, yeah. 20 years. You know, there used to be like these really quality products like a craftsman tool, right? Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, lo and behold, that gets bought out by this multinational conglomerate or some, you know, huge uh bank industry thing from China and all of a sudden the quality disappears, but they keep the name and they keep that emotional attachment in order to, you know, drive more profits.
0: Yeah. On the, on the topic of driving, I just saw that Mercedes Benz is now offering a subscription based service for mm-hmm. your engine to run better. So yep. it's like we, they, they already have, and the same thing with BMW is going to offer you a subscription to, to use your seat warmers. Like mm-hmm. they're just, they're just re, Like they're not gonna make anything new. They're just gonna piecemeal everything back to you. Like you could buy the whole car last year, but now, oh, you want the seat heater, oh you want your air conditioner to work? That's extra.
3: Oh I pay I pay four dollars and ninety-five cents a month to start my Subaru from my phone. There you go. Like it's not on the remote controller, like is as it should be. It's you know, four bucks, so it's not like whatever and you know, most people aren't gonna really bat an eye at spending four ninety five. So strategically priced, and it gives me access to the app on my phone that then can lock my doors, gives me like all the control of my car remotely. So I can start, you know, kind of my car from anywhere, you know, walking from the airport, get my car started, like you know, it has some values more than just something like when I see my car for sure, but I gotta pay for it.
1: Well, Tesla so, kinda of kicked this whole thing off, right? Totally. You know, they 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 created that subscription model where, you know, that never existed in vehicles. But then all of a sudden, if you want the software update so your car can go zero to sixty point one seconds faster, you know, it'll cost you seven thousand dollars. Or if you want the semi-autonomous driving thing, I think it was like fifteen some thousand dollars for that upgrade. And so all of a sudden these upgrade and subscription models have kind of infiltrated into vehicles. And I think everybody's just kind of fallen suit because they're like, Oh shit, Tesla's making a lot of money. Why don't we figure out how to do this?
3: Well, it's a way to make a consumer out of us. I have to continue consuming. And I think that's where this idea of subscription into our homes and into our vehicles, these things that were maybe like once every while purchases, Now they're finding ways to continue to make money off of us. Mm -hmm. So you buy your home and now there's gonna be all these elements of subscription to make your home that much better and things with our, cause they keep us on for, you know, our lifetime value goes up as customers to them versus making purchases every five, 10, 15 years, depending on who you are with these things.
1: And these are also just pure profit incentives too, right? You know, that 499, they're not, they don't need to have that money to pay engineers to constantly be updating right. anything. That's a one and done. So yeah. all of that 499 times the millions and millions of Subarus out there. Well, now you have just a steady stream of income that's pure profit.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, a little sinister if you think about it. It's just, it's just undermining the consumer to the point where there's, there's nothing left to spend. Well, well, but then, you
1: know, you attach some zeros onto the economy and there's some more to spend.
0: <laughs> or you just give people money or you just and give they give it right money. back to you. <laughs> so just
3: going, sorry, I had to do some math here because what you were saying, Vince, really interesting. Let's just say there's a million, you think there's a million Subaru drivers that would subscribe to this? Is that a is that a fair? Because I bet this is something that's car probably that's low. Let's cool. just say three to three years. So about a million and they're one of the top cars, like I would say, at least here in Colorado, Uh, but like definitely certain parts of the country. So they have a million people paying four dollars and ninety five cents annually. They're generating fifty nine point four million dollars from just that subscription from four dollars and ninety five cents. That's sixty million dollars of profit. That's insane.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, there's that's a reason all these companies are putting up record profits. And that's part of it, for
0: sure.
3: Yeah, oh, that's an interesting thought.
0: Yeah, I think it goes along with engineered scarcity as well. Like, you're seeing all these older cars being taken off. You know, you're seeing this, this artificial scarcity take place so that this new, you'll own nothing and be happy model can be, can be brought in. You know, Kevin brought up an interesting point yesterday, and... Uh, I'm not sure it, we all agreed with it, but it was a different point of view on the topic of you'll own nothing and be happy. Do you think that the, the idea of owning things may be a point of contention that makes people unhappy? And what I mean by that is, you know, there's this level of animosity if your neighbor gets a new car and you don't have, it, you start looking at them a little different. I mean, probably not us, but you, you can see how this idea of coveting things or, you know, keeping up with the Joneses could be something that gets people in trouble so if you were unable to own stuff would it take that sort of animosity out of the human condition Hmm.
3: So you're saying that if there's no ownership you could not covet because you don't own anything is that basically what you're saying george and nobody else would too right nobody else would either so what is there to covet
0: Mm -hmm. It may free you from, from these, these constraints of judging who you are by what you have. Not exactly. I didn't put exactly, but that's the gist I'm trying to make.
1: But I think that's, I don't think it's going away in that model. I think it just gets kind of replaced because, you know, like for instance, you know, there's this big push for like the metaverse, which obviously is kind of crashed and burned, but it's still going to come back and push again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now all of a sudden, these physical ownership things turn into virtual goods. And, you know, if you look at like gamers and all of those things, you know, what was that Farmville game? That was one of the first big apps at their height. They were making some crazy number, like $30 million a month or something like that, because people wanted, you know, some pigs on their farm in this little digital handheld game.
0: Yeah, it it makes – this is another point I I wanted to bring up in the beginning is that along with the change from rationality to emotionality, so too are we changing from buying things to non-things. Like a subscription is a non-thing. You know, taking Robux and buying a character in a game is a non-thing. You know, we are – we have never seen this shift into buying widgets or buying – fictional products that don't really have any value except for a sort of cultic value in a, in a linear world, you know, or in in a, in a virtual world, like there's all this money going to these virtual spaces. And when you just pan back and think about that from a rational point of view, it's like, the fuck is this money going? You're buying a virtual character for how much? you're You're buying buying a subscription.
3: You're buying experience right? You're buying a dopamine release, you're buying that feeling that when you press that button, the desire that you had is now yours, because that's what they're able to do. They're able to create desire and say, Oh, you should desire pigs on your farm, because you're going to be able to do x, y and z. And that's going to progress you forward. And so it's again, very much playing off the emotion of desire. So what are you buying is you're buying your desires. And you're buying a dopamine release and it may be a non-thing but it is it is a physical emotional release that takes place that's what they're that that's how they're getting you addicted to these things um in in this experience and i think on some levels it could get so individualized that yeah we don't think we need real things because we can we can buy our emotions we can buy our experiences and, and we get disconnected about how the real world gives us those same experiences but it's out of our control and that's far scarier.
1: Well, you don't even get the same experiences. I mean, you can't get that dopamine release in the real world by just clicking a couple of buttons. But you, you load up these apps that are, you know, designed by psychologists, you know, you know, the flashing lights, the the bright, you know, the fireworks going off, the hey, you leveled up to level thirty five on your farm. And all of these things, those are instantaneous dopamine releases. It's, you know, kind of similar to the doom scrolling phenomenon that a lot of people get caught up in. Uh, But to go out in the real world and get something like that, it typically requires effort, right? A lot more than a couple of clicks of your finger.
0: This is is the move from, I I think what we're seeing is the move from a consumer capitalism to emotional capitalism. And instead of buying things, now you are buying and consuming meanings and emotions. How, how deep can we go into this emotional capitalism before the entire system breaks? Like if you flood all the money from a rational, tangible system into a system that's based on emotions where you're buying dopamine hits, where you're buying a fictional experience so you can feel like you accomplished something versus really accomplishing something. Like, how long can you suck these people out of the system before the original system fails?
3: Well, I wonder, though, kind of on some levels, how much does it require the rational system to drive the emotional one? Right, like we, we assume that the that you maybe it's these altruistic guys are in their garage and they like came up with this video game called Farmville, and right, like no, like that's the, that's the narrative, right? That's the that's kind of what marketing would like us to believe. But, like these are freaking scientists that understand like as Ben was saying the psychology of a human being and they're designing a game around that that's highly rational on some levels right like it's understanding how to how to change people's behaviors and the rational mind i think can really only manipulate the emotional the emotional can't manipulate the emotional and again that's where i don't know that rational like in the general public But I think they can suck off this like they can shift us fully into an emotional society. Um, And and we think the whole time that, you know, it's this reality. But behind the scenes is a highly rationalized system driving the whole thing.
1: And I, I don't think you see like the system kind of break. What I think you see and what I think we've seen is that you have a centralizing of the of the power. Mm. and you know Mm. it'll continue to you know centralize itself until you're just left with a few
0: massive conglomerates Mm
1: -hmm. and there's already industries that are that way
3: Yep.
0: it's just a giant hey it's just a giant distraction so we can consolidate power yeah yeah Yeah, you know
2: micro micro dopamine releases for people who bite their nails right they're gonna Mm. yeah they're like like designing, you know, games and tools on your phone that they can charge you for that are like pennies per click, and then people will just be hooked to their phones, just clicking away on these little tiny dopamine, readings, you know, until they're like cracked out.
1: And you know, cracked out is probably a, a pretty apt term. Uh, you know, if you if you take some of these people who spent their entire lives just sucking on these dopamine you know, little sippers in their cage, all of a sudden you remove them from that system and they experience significant emotional distress. You know, they fall into hysterics, they they become, you know, all sorts of depressed and experience massive anxiety attacks and all sorts of very deleterious and detrimental things to the human system.
3: But we have pills (laughs) for those people. And so if they just take a couple (laughs) of them, they're going to feel fine. And that anxiety and depression will go right away because Yeah, that's that's your brain failing you, not your like, let's we can fix that.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, and then I was gonna say if you look at uh who's who's benefiting and profiting off of those, where is that money all being invested from and where's it being invested into, you know, you find that there's a significant amount of overlap on, you know, like uh something like a BlackRock, for instance, on Mm. you know, the types of investments that they make. Uh, and, you know, they're playing the pharmaceutical card. They're playing, the you know, these these dopamine release cards. And all of a sudden, you know, they're profiting, you know, seven ways to Sunday off of everybody.
3: That's why you see this rise, you know, again, as you watch the community, because this is the doom and gloom. Right. I would say this is the, the majority of people. But on the fringes, you start seeing these conversations being had around how, you know, resistance training and you need to to increase the dopamine, you have to have effort. And you'd see these guys like Huberman Labs popping up and that three-hour podcasts on this stuff. You see Wim Hof, you see all over the place, people cold plunging and, and this becoming a thing like that you spend your time doing and, and doing cold exposure and hot exposure. So it's interesting, like you see this, there's a shift there, um, and but, it's, but that stuff is fringe. And it's kind of interesting, like, the common person would be like, you sat in a cold bath for why? Like, mm-hmm. Why would you ever do that? You're weird. You're crazy. Um, and it's kind of a, yeah, it's on that it's fringe, which is fascinating to me. That's you, Ben.
1: Yeah, that's me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, like uh, yesterday, a buddy came over and he's like, dude, you have a cold plunge in the backyard? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you got a pair of shorts? Like, can we go hang out? Cause he's been doing it. So like we spent time just hanging out in the backyard around the cold plunge. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like it's happening and it's important to work. I
1: I think there is kind of a movement of people who are, have been frustrated by the system for sure. But I think, you know, back to our 9 billion number, right. You know, if that has some sort of merit of truth, you know, how many, how many people are actually, you know, taking that experience how many people are going down that path um, yeah like the Huberman Labs podcast does a great job with the neurochemistry of all of this stuff and he goes into very great detail about how this all works and, and more explicitly you know how to rewire kind of what you're doing in your system and various aspects of you know whatever you might want to do with your life but at the same time you know it is French and it, it, but there is a movement happening and it would be interesting to kind of Maybe plot that out on a graph, kind of see you know what type of numbers these things are getting. How many cold plunges are being sold? How many saunas are being
0: sold? Yeah. Do you think there's a correlation between this movement happening and psychedelics?
3: Yes, right. I see it overlap. A lot mm-hmm. of people saying the same stuff. Wim Wim Hof. I don't think he he talks some about psychedelics, but his whole thing is like, you can have a psychedelic experience with your breath and giving yeah. people holotropic breathing yeah, giving people that ability to, to do it uh, from from that angle. But yeah, I think there's a massive overlap between between the two.
1: Right. And you have to figure probably one of the greatest purveyors of this is Joe Rogan, for better or for worse. Right. Yeah. And just because of the, the stretch, the breadth of his audience um, and i would i would say you know all of the people who are kind of really at the forefront of talking about these things in the public space have also talked very publicly about psychedelics and their experiences and how that's led them down these paths so yeah i see a massive overlap too
3: i just looked up back to our nine million number salesforce publishes its own figures this is coming from TechCrunch, um based on 1.5 billion shoppers and it noted that online sales reached eight billion in the U.S. and forty billion globally at 5 p.m. Eastern on Black Friday, with most of the discounted items in the U.S. appearing in home appliances, apparel, health and beauty, and luxury handbags.
1: Hmm. that's or- fascinating. Luxury handbags made that list,
3: <laughs> right? And what's even more interesting is that Black Friday is an international phenomenon. Right. Like, like other people are are buying up the goods. Like that's, that's, I've never thought about Black Friday. I always figured it was just a US thing. I wouldn't imagine like global shoppers getting discounts on Black Friday.
1: I think that's probably more recent development. Because, you know, think about it, if, if all of a sudden I can go on Amazon.com or I can go to Overstock.com or whatever, and I can pick up all of these things, and I know they're going to be cheap on Black Friday, I'll probably delay my purchases for a couple months if I need something or want something.
3: How much and, of that $40 billion was Amazon <laughs> to that point, right?
0: A lot. And, and you still got Cyber Monday coming up. Right. right, that yeah. happens this Monday, which is Amazon. Like Amazon created its own holiday. Like that's how gigantic these people are, but they're just li- they're just liquidating their warehouses, right? Like right. that's what that's what yeah. Cyber Monday is. Like, hey, this crap's not selling. Let's get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So here's a, like th- this is what I, I it trips me out too. When we look at this idea of a changing world, and we look at this idea of like ESG scores and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you look at the 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 idea of multinational corporations talking about a green agenda in ESG, it seems to me the biggest flaw that no one talks about is how is it that any multinational corporation, how can any of them be talking about building a better world when their entire business model is built on excess consumption? You know what I mean? Like, that's so dumb to me. Like, your entire, all of it, the whole economy is built on excess consumption. And you're going to stand up here and tell me you're doing the best you can to bring down, like, to have, what's the point of an ESG score if your business model is excess consumption?
1: Well, you know, now you're being rational and not emotional, (laughs) George.
0: Exactly. Watch this video, right? Put the toothpicks in your eyes and watch the video.
3: (laughs) You can look outside and it's clearly happening global warming, right? Come on. (laughs)
0: I'm beginning to think this guy's not vaccinated. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And I think that's another thing psychedelics does, as well as, as the cold plunge or any sort of resistance training, is it forces you to think critically. You know, and, and maybe that's another thing that this sort of emotional capitalism is doing to us, is it's trying to alleviate the critical thinking. You know, with consumption comes emotion. With emotion comes the inability to contemplate or think critically. So it seems, and I know if I had a tinfoil hat, I'd put it on right now because I think it's by a design. I think that this is what, like what Jason was saying. I think that this is a new system coming in place to consume, 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 cradle to grave. Thanks for being here. Have a nice day.
1: Well, I would take off the little tinfoil hat just a little bit, because, you know, at, at some level, it. while you could say it's by design, that doesn't imply necessarily that there's some group of people sitting in a room and having a conversation. But these people are all very readily aware of what's going to benefit them. And, you know, they've all they're in, you know, they're all colleagues at some level. You know, a lot of them went sure. to the same colleges, went to the same fraternities, you know, are part of similar networks. And so they don't have to directly have some cabal that's kind of orchestrating this. They're all going to be acting in their self-interest. And through that action, you know, they're, they're going to take very similar steps when it comes to these things.
0: Right. And I think that this, you know, on the – for those listening, Ben has an amazing podcast on Saturdays called Saturday Shenanigans. And I caught a little bit of that podcast And I think some of the things that you guys were talking about there was this idea of disruption and how people say the four of us or people that may be like minded that think critically and are beginning to see clear there is a path for disruption to this giant monolith. A lot of times when things get so huge, they get sloppy, they get so big their overconfidence is their weakness and they leave room for these new niche markets or they leave room for these new strategies to get a foothold in fact these big companies the only way they grow is by buying up and consuming the smaller ones mm-hmm. so I, maybe we can shift gears a little bit and cover a few of the same things and maybe we'll have some new ideas since there's more of a we have a, a different dynamic group here maybe we can talk a little bit about disruption and throwing a wrench into the giant system using the Terra Libre project.
1: Sure. Um, well, you know, I think a, a good way to kind of imagine that is you have this massive monolith. And, and in order for change to happen at these scales, it has to go through 17 middle managers, go up to, a, you know, a couple VPs. And, all you know, in, there's such a cumbersome effort for, for any sort of pivot to happen whereas when you're you know you have a very smaller operation or you know it's it's individualized now you become very nimble and your ability to adjust to the marketplace becomes you know your your number one uh, strength really uh and you know i think in in to what to your point earlier you also then see that these big companies they come out and just buy up all these people who are much more nimble than them in hopes that they can just perpetuate this this mega you know conglomeration of whatever they're doing these days uh but it, therein i think lies the opportunity for to actually disrupt this and and invoke a little bit of change in society
0: yeah it's so if we were to look at sort of the structure model you know when i think of a multinational corporation or even a smaller type of llc or corporation you have this top-down structure where whether you have a board of directors And then your your upper middle management and your middle management and then your employees. It seems to me the Terra Libre project or the model that is right to disrupt the big boys is from the bottom up. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, in essence, except you know, the bottom is the is the top as well. Um, so
0: instead of having
1: this pyramid structure, you just have a network structure that, that is expansive and each individual node on the network then becomes you know an effective mechanism uh in in tool for people to gain wealth uh so and you know we see this it, so you're, you're decentralizing that power structure and you're also decentralizing the incentive structure because those the whole reason it's built that way is because people you know they're they're greedy and taking advantage of people at the end of the day
0: Yeah. Do you, you know, I think I could make a case for, you know, there was a book that came out a while back called bullshit jobs and it was this book about people making like six figures or sometimes, you know, you know, crooked numbers in front of those six figures. And they really weren't doing anything. Another idea of that would be look, look at all these people at Twitter that just lost their job. Like Twitter's running fine, probably better than ever, but all Mm -hmm. these people making all this money, they really weren't doing anything. And so that seems to be the problem of the monolith. Like it gets so big and then all of a sudden it's just paying out all these people for really not doing anything. That, that seems where it's, where it's a good spot to strike if you are this upstart.
3: But I'm, I think it's also connected to the expert, I'm gonna make up a word of like expertization. I don't know if that's a word or not, but like you basically have to deal with an expert now. And if you're not an expert, you don't have anything to say. And so it's really interesting, like how the, it's like, we've gone so insular. You have like an expert on like, just the the left valve of the heart and may not even understand how the rest of the body works, but they're an expert on what that valve does and how it works and, and what it plays. But if that person had to do open heart surgery on the other chamber, they're fucked. They don't know that chamber. And where it used to be like you would actually understand the whole heart or the whole body right and so it's interesting like that we've we have gotten to this place where we believe the experts to such a level that when someone comes along that's a non-expert that's speaking rationally they're seen as again wearing a tinfoil cap and i don't know if you guys have been paying attention but from one thing that i've been watching recently on netflix is the ancient apocalypse with graham hancock you guys haven't seen it it's fantastic but um, talk about someone that's disrupting, he's trying to disrupt the the narrative of humanity and looking at the fact that there was an ancient civilization that existed before the the ice age uh, came. And basically they were the ones that taught the next human civilization how to progress and how to move forward and how to build shit and how to do all this stuff. And again, but he's seen as this coop, right? Um, but he's not, <laughs> he's uh, He's just a non-expert and no one's willing to listen to him because of that. I don't know, what do you guys think about that?
1: Well, I, you know, I I love what Graham Hancock does. I, I've said it before, but you know, I disagree with his conclusion of how it all went down in terms of the ice age and things like that. But um, he, he just goes over a few pieces of evidence in that whole narrative. Uh, and there's so much more out in the world and it's found on every single continent, um, but you know, one thing that I think he did wrong is he spent probably 15 minutes every episode, you know, basically poking the tiger in the butt <laughs> and saying, and saying that these people are, you know, they're all trying to shut me down. And he was very contentious about it, which I get that he's spent the past 30 years of his life being shit on by these people. So I I understand where he's coming from, but I don't think that was probably the, the most applicable approach that he could have chosen. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it kind of gets into the thing like tenure. I heard you guys talking about tenure last night a little bit. Um, but, you know, these people get in these positions of authority and they're, they're the expert. And now, you know, they make all of their money. They make all of their fame off of being the expert. Or, you know, like these Egyptologists, you know, these guys who, you know, run the narrative of how Egypt was formed and how the pyramid was built and how all of these things are done. And to go against that, all of a sudden you just get slandered.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of like the the child who never works and just waits for their wealthy parent to die. Oh, it's like, I can't like like Prince Charles like oh I can't wait till my mom dies and I'm gonna be king. You know the same way the expert waits in school for forty years for the professor to die so he can finally say well my idea is good too. You know, but he has to wait because he's not willing to go out there and do the work. He's not willing to go out there and be called a conspiracy theorist. He's not willing to leave the walls of the, of the neighborhood because it's dangerous, you know? And I like what you said too, Jay, about this idea of specialization, how there's a specialist for everything. Like there's a specialist for the left ventricle of the heart. And I think you can say that, I think you can see that exact same picture in supply chains. Like what happens if one little supply chain breaks nowadays? Like it's so, specialized like uh oh this plant in China shut down no more iPhones this plant in Vietnam set down okay no more Cadillac converters you know like it's it's we've gotten so specialized that now no one can do the whole
3: right nobody's can nobody sees the whole thing and if right. you do if you do work at it from a perspective of, of the whole you're fringe right you're you're kind of put out as a like like, why would you ever trust that person? Like, I, I see this in health all the time. Yeah. Right? Working like in the naturopathic or natural medicine world that looks at things a lot more holistically, that scene is like kooky. Or, you know, someone that's that they're not a specialist. Um, and and we the, to be a generalist, right, to be a renaissance man is no longer seen as being valuable. You're wasting your time. You can't come up. You know, you can't stick on one thing. Like, you should study one thing for the rest of your life. Like, that's insane. That's what a lot of people are doing
1: with their careers. Well, the, that's because the the incentive structures are aligned that way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, we see it in farming, too, right? We have monocropping, mm-hmm. you know, yep. uh, we know what that leads to. Eventually, we had a dust ball. We figured out why we had a dust ball, um, you know, and, yeah, and yet we're repeating that same process. But yet this time, we have some genetically modified seeds that are gonna you know solve the
0: entire problem for us. This time it's different. This time it's different. <laughs> Anytime you hear that, like you just have to start laughing, right? Like how, how can how how can anybody say utter that sentence and be in with a straight face?
1: There's the same people who say, you know, we've always done it this way, so we're gonna continue to do it this way.
0: <laughs> okay, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's a fascinating time to be alive, and I, 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 you know, I think there's a few ways to look at it, and and I think you're seeing this play out across the nation. You're seeing one group of people live in fear. Oh no, we're all gonna die. This is coming. The da 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 da, and then you see another group of people that are like, dude, this is the perfect time to disrupt this beast. You know, what can we do? And it's happening all around us. I mean, I, I see it happening in the group that we're in. I see these nodes being built. And though I can't thoroughly explain what the future holds, I feel as if we are in uncharted territory in some areas.
1: I would agree, uh, in especially when you factor in our ability to have this type of communication across right. these distances. Right. Um, you know, that's yeah. it, for the first time in pretty much recorded history, we have the ability to interact at, at the individual level in mass um without some sort of gatekeeping mechanism or or you know conglomeration or people or red tape to you know that, to get into the newspaper or what have you uh, and i think that's where this kind of movement is really being driven from ultimately
0: yeah it's never been easier to find like-minded people that want to do something or that align with you in, and that that can be positive and negative i, th- I guess you could find echo chambers that way but it also allows you to find some areas of friction that can ignite the dream that you want to put onto the world.
3: I was going to say, have you been on Reddit? We're talking mm-hmm. about like an echo chamber. Uh, it's on some levels. I feel like you, if you're a contrarian or you bring up uh, something that's opposing in the comment thread, the community comes around and downvotes it. And like, it, it's very hard to be an independent thinker, I find, it, especially in some of the re- subreddits, right? Um, and more silly ones, like, but it's fascinating how you can drive people into thinking all one way, and, and then it's everyone's we're good, right? That's the social credit score piece that I think is so interesting of how we can all be like minded, and to not be like minded is you now you're an outcast. So it'd be interesting, then it's like, where are the outcast communities, right? And that's that's a, a, I think a place that we could be paying attention to the fringes of like who's saying that, who's why are they being canceled right now? That's a question that I'm often asking. Like instead of assuming the worst, like why why is this person going through this right now? What's what's this speaking to, and how is it against the larger narrative?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, these these echo chambers are are uh, very detrimental. Um, And I think this gets into, you know, why does this happen? Uh, And, I, you know, I feel this happens because partly education, right? But from a philosophical standpoint, um, the ideologies that people are ascribed to, uh, the tribes that they participate in, uh, they're not built upon upon foundations that are, you know, that drive creativity, that drive, you know, different ideas that, you know, uh, thrive upon debate you know, there used to be a great, there used to be great debates, right? When's the last time we've really seen a great debate, you know, in relative context to before. And so when all of a sudden we remove, you know, the, the intellectual ability for us to sit and, you know, hash out ideas, things become an echo chamber. And then back to where we started, you know, you throw in some consumerism and then you make it emotional. And then that echo chamber just, you know, echoes back even harder
0: yeah it it just it just helps me reaffirm that you know there's certain ingredients you need to build a fire and if you take away one of those ingredients you're not gonna get a fire if you take out the oxygen you're not gonna get the fire if you don't have the fuel you're not gonna get the fire and it seems that on some level you know there's there's a conscious effort to take away at least one of those elements wherever people are turning to.
1: I don't know if it's necessarily, again, I don't think a little less tinfoil hat. I don't think it's necessary like some concerted centralized effort. But I think, you know, when you align, if you just look at like a game theory perspective, yeah. you align yeah. the incentives and then you align, you know, the, the, the kind of loose structures that exist that are kind of upholding these incentives, all of a sudden you don't really have to have a group like that. You don't have to have some conglomerate that's trying to pull all these streams because the people and the players that are in the game are going to act in their own self-interest. And that self-interest is the continued, you know, basically extraction of value from the
0: common individual. Yeah. We were talking last night, like, you know, there's, I think, I think Paul said it like there's the, there's not the will, but there's the possibility. Like if, if we could just change Citizens United and maybe change, if you could change Citizens United and say the corporations are not people, and you could add into the charter of every corporation that not, it's, it's not the profit of the shareholder, but also the well-being of the people. I think you could fundamentally change the way business works in this country.
1: What do you think? Sure, but how are you going to sell that?
0: Right. There's, there's no will to do it.
1: And, you know, even if there was some will to do it, I think you end up in a position where all of the people who are profiting off of this structure are going to align against you. And that's a lot of power and that's a lot of money and that's a lot of, you know, ticker tape and red tape and court dates and lawyers and all sorts of other things that bog down the ability to invoke that change. Yeah.
0: You know, this, this, this conversation seems to me to be one that is had by probably greater minds than than me for sure. But I I remember Peter Thiel talking about one way to get through some of all this minutia and stuff would be to start like, you know, your own little, your own um, uh, special economic zone. You know, if you had like a sort of island type or a floating island or something like that, you could theoretically create your own. You know uh NGO or your seZ and and then you could get away from some of this stuff. like there are these special economic zones throughout the world. There are these non-government organizations that pop up in different countries around the world where you know you you are a giant corporation and you abide by these five countries' laws. you know it's but you got to have tons of money to be able to do that. like that that game is for the mega wealthy the you know, if you're not if you are not. Generational money, you don't really have a chance,
1: right. And so that's where I think you know we institute a different model, uh, and yes. you create that we create that known system, like Terra Libre project, where the individual now is directly benefiting at the highest level possible from their effort into the system. Now, if all of the individuals are you know now you're now back to the game theory perspective now what sort of incentive structures are there? Well, do I want to go work for an Apple where, yeah, I'll make six figures, but I'm beholden to all of these things? Or do I want to work for myself where I can still make six figures or potentially even more? And then when I do, you know, all of my ingenuity, all of my creativity is, is mine. I own. And, you know, I think if you you create that proper model, that's when you can really compete in that marketplace. You don't need to have the big generation of money. You don't need to be a big NGO. You could just be a loose conglomeration of like-minded individuals that you know have a same charter, for instance, and and how you know, it, just like we were talking before, where you know those you don't need a big group who kind of dictates everything. They're gonna they're gonna self-align based upon their interest. The same thing would happen at the individual level.
3: And that's so, what we don't trust. I, I think at the end of the day is we. We're, I feel like we're so conditioned to really not trust the individual, um, and that that because we're kind of told to not trust ourselves. And I think this is one of the biggest things that religion does is takes that away, right? The ability to truly trust oneself. There is, especially within like Christianity, is like you're evil, right? You're a sinner. You can't trust yourself. So you remove the trust of the self and then it becomes you have to then you, you trust the group or you trust group think, not the individual. And then the group will then align itself to, to itself. But if we, again, get to this, like where we see the reality, like if individuals, we would align as a community of people because we our self-interest is your self-interest. Like that's what it means to believe in the good of humanity, that we would find a way to align all of our interests as individuals instead of it being happening to us at these corporate levels
1: right and and you know it's very important on you know how that's worded and how those in and how you basically onboard these people and in the structure that exists um yeah because most people are really afraid of something like that because they feel that at some level they're going to lose their autonomy somebody wants to take a piece of the pie you know all these different factors that you know are uh, fear tactics essentially um but to be able to overcome that with the proper the proper model now all of a sudden you you know imagine to our example all of the Subaru owners paying 4.99 a month and how many millions of them are and how much money that was per year now all of a sudden if you get some sort of similar conglomeration except it's the individuals and all of that money now can flow into bettering the system and growing that network and creating more opportunity for those individuals, you you can compete against these things.
0: Yeah. You have 495 for a group of 20,000 people and that money's going into a pot to make everybody better. You know, it's not being siphoned off by a bonus here or a sales order there. Shareholders. Yeah. Yeah, you don't. You're not responsible to any of those dummies.
1: Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, from that from that pool, now now we can afford more infrastructure. We can build better systems. We can provide services within that that structure to, you know, allow people to cross over red tapes to grow their businesses to, um, you know, uh, provide you know the ability for people to talk and have communications and debate ideas and you know all of these things and when if we can align those i think we end up in a very strong position at at, as you know a group of people where now you can look at like you know an apple and be like okay well we don't need to do it that way we can we can take all of that money that is being siphoned off and we can build a stronger network of people we can provide them with all sorts of different uh services to grow their individual stake in these things and now, all of a sudden, we're in the game. We have pieces on the board. It kind of sounds like a republic in some ways. I mean, so when I've been thinking about this over the years, the the idea is, is you know, take the things that work from, you know, different aspects of, of what we've tried and experimented with as, you know, throughout history and, you know, take the ones that are going to, benefit the individuals, grow individual wealth, have the ability to create a system that, you know, is not just a republic, it's not just a meritocracy, it's it's not just socialistic, but yet merge all of these things into a, a novel idea, a novel model that, you know, it doesn't detract from, you know, somebody coming in and, and being a part of it, doesn't try to benefit off the backs of other people. Uh, and yet can still manage to compete in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, you know, another thing that we haven't talked about that it seems like it does is it seems like it it doesn't reward fraudulent behavior, which is something that the current system it puts a premium on.
1: Right. And, you, you know, and you really can combat that when you start to have things like a, a one person, one vote type idea. In, right. In this. Um, and because then, you know, and especially if you attach some transparency to all of that stuff now, you know, there's you you don't really there's not a lot of shadows to hide in. You know, the, those passive corruption that exists in all the bureaucracies that we we have today uh, vanish very quickly.
0: Yeah. It's a fascinating concept to think about. I um I think it's I, I think it's right. You know, I, I I I think that this is one of many parallel structures that we're gonna see beginning to pop up around not only where we are, but you know there's parallel constructions that have been happening, probably in Sri Lanka, probably all over the world, wherever there's wherever there's strife, right? Like you're seeing they call it used to call it the black market, but it's just a parallel economy
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I, and I think we're going to see a lot of them pop up. And I've seen a lot of ideas that kind of have some similar similarities and some parallels to this pop up. But, you know, a lot of these things are still founded in the ideal of, hey, I'm going to start this great idea. And, you know, the four of us, we're going to kick ass and make millions of dollars because we're going to be the first movers in this. You know, we're going to have a larger stake. Um, And, you know, they so again, back to our, our consumerism and, you know, the stage that's been that we've been indoctrinated into. Uh, you know, that is such an incentive in this world today that a lot of, you know, the novel ideas are just a rehashing of the old idea, but you know, with a new paint job.
3: So, so I'm curious, like Mm -hmm. what's your guys' perspective, like thinking through some of these ideas and what we're doing, like what Elon's doing with Twitter, like from your worldview, where you're at, do you feel like, is he helping Twitter right now? Like, what's the narrative? Like, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean. I, helping Twitter is a pretty big statement, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure he's helping himself pretty well. And, and the people who put up the money to privatize Twitter, um, I think what's going to happen is, uh, they are going to all of a sudden bring it out as a public company after, you know, gets more traction and all of this stuff and kind of exactly what he did with Tesla. This is from his playbook. You know he privatized it and then re-released it on the market and look at tesla shares today um you know they're a thousand times what they were when it was originally privatized I, and so i think that's kind of the playbook that we're going to see in twitter um in terms of betterment of twitter i think the product will get better because there's the incentive to kind of uh you know control that marketplace that social media square town square and he said as much he wants to make it like a WeChat, you know, where you can do all sorts of transactions on it where, you know, everything's basically included in, in that single singular app.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, just by privatizing it, like he's going to put a lot of pressure on all the other social media companies. You know, when they were all public, they probably had. I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure that there was at least some influence from you know, I don't know if they had interlocking boards of directors, but I bet you there is some pretty big influence between this board and this board and this board and this board. Like, hey, they're doing that. You know, they're they're getting, it's, it's almost like price fixing. Like, hey, we're all going to sell at this price. Hey, we're all going to have this policy. Hey, we're all going to do this to keep two thirty. But when he goes Mm -hmm. private, all of a sudden he's the, he's the, he's the upstart at the mafia family table. Like, look, I'm, I don't need to do that anymore. I don't serve that guy anymore. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. It's like that movie Goodfellas when Joe Pesci goes to Vegas, and all of a sudden those other gangsters are like, "Hey, whoa! Well, what are you doing over here?" He's like, "We're over here now. Hey, we're over here now." You know what I mean? That's so a fairly Elon decent Musk, impression. <laughs> Elon Musk is like, "Hey, we're over here now. Yeah, hey, we're over here." You know, and that allows him some freedom to to go and cut stuff. It allows him to to break the woke. It allows him to. Give the finger to some of these fat, ugly lobbyists that were just coasting on, coasting on money, coasting on fumes, and were sitting in their positions. And so I, I think that he does have, you know, at least a window to do some disruption and force these other companies to lean out a little bit, you know, like force them to start playing at a level that they should have been playing at 10, 10 years ago. So I think that would help Twitter if that answers the question.
3: So, George, you see a little bit more altruistically, like, you know, Elon's like trying to do something with this, whereas Ben, I hear you're a little bit more of like, he's just going to be making a bunch more money.
0: I, I think both. I think that by, by, you know, I think that by, he sees that people want change. And I, I, don't, I don't think that he's altruistic or that he has these grand motives to to make the world better but I, I see there's a market share there that no one's tapped that not, not only people were not tapping into but they were just flat out denying like these people are dumb we don't want any of their money so there's this giant pe- there's a giant mass of people lined up to give someone money and no one will sell to them he's like mm-hmm. i'll sell to you i'll sell to you at a premium come on over here those guys are all dumb come over here you know and he he has the niche he has the new apple tesla is the new apple apple's dying apple's dying on the vine you know, their Foxconn is an Apple with a worm in it. And you have Tesla over here that is this new thing. And they're like, we'll build a new phone. What do you want us to do? We'll do anything. Like they, they are what Apple was 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. You know, they're, they're the new, they're the flower. They're the apple blossom flower beginning to fruit. And so I, 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 I don't know that he's altruistic, but I think he has positioned himself in a spot to be ripe
1: i wouldn't call them out altruistic either i think you know it's it's the idea of altruism to benefit you know mm, uh if,
0: it's a good
1: concept. if if all of a sudden you know i can cater to that vast market that george is talking about and it'll appear as altruism but at the end of the day you know the structure is still the same thing the profit incentives are still the same Way where that money is going to flow is going to be a similar to where it would flow from an Apple perspective. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that there's you know some greater good uh, at the core of this. Um, now, even though some greater good might be accomplished by uh, by a lot of these steps that he's trying to take, uh, I don't find that there's some sort of you know core al-
3: altruism behind it. Could
1: be wrong. Well, I, think- I don't know the guy, but you know. Yeah.
3: Well, I think it's interesting because he's, I mean, again, when we think about some of the stuff we talk about, you know, especially like psychedelics, he's one of the probably, you know, the most famous people that's talked about it. I don't know, like I haven't heard Tim Cook talk about doing psychedelics, like, you know, going on, you know, smoking weed on Rogan and stock shares tumble. Like he's someone that's kind of been this disruptor of sorts and similar things that that we maybe would want to see disruption around as well. So I don't ever know to trust the guy and be like, okay, I'm into what you're doing, man. Like, I, I don't know. It's kind of weird, but like, I'm into it. Or is it like, you know, is he evil? Is he, you know, the richest man on the world in the world? And he's not Iron Man. He's, you know, he's the villain. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. How I, don't, do you guys I
1: don't think it's evil just as much as I don't think it's altruism. Hmm. Um, you know, I think this is, And again, back to the incentive structures of the world, I think this is just that incentive structure playing out at just a larger scale. Um, You know, there's no evil necessarily behind it. There's you know, there's not in, in, you know, he's not trying to pull the rug out off of under us. He's just trying to make more money. And if you look at kind of the stuff that he's talked about over the years. He has some ideas about, you know, humanity and, you know, industrialization, you know, manufacturing, uh, getting off this planet, uh, things like that, that are probably more aligned with his core motivations. Uh, In those pursuits, I think you do get altruism and a greater good that comes from a lot of these things. Uh, But I don't think that him at a personal level is trying to, you know, be that
0: that some, some sort of savior or some sort of devil. You know, I, I want to, I want to throw this out at you guys. Like, do you remember, like, staying with my dead Apple and new Apple? As above, so below. Death and rebirth. Do you guys remember, like, in 1980, the first Apple computer commercial was during the Super Bowl, and it was a play on 1984, yep. and it was the new Mac was coming. Like, everybody remember that? And like, they're running, and like, all of a sudden, like, all these IBM guys are, like running off a cliff, and then like at the end. This girl jumps out and she takes a sledgehammer and she smashes the telescreen, which is like the 1984. And then I think the tagline was something like, Apple computers. Let me tell you why 1984 won't be 1984. Like that's gone full circle. Like Tim Cook is now the Goldstein. You know what I mean? Like, like, look, like they went from being, we're not 1984, to having this mass group of uniform robots in China making things like an assembly line. And so like what I see happening full circle, like like Steve Jobs, psychedelic guy, right? That guy did all kinds of LSD, talks about it in his books. Mm-hmm. So he comes out and he was kind of the beginning of the left movement. He was the beginning of coming in and getting rid of the, the old blue, I think they called it, IBM, you know, big blue or whatever, something like that. And this was this rigid Republican suit and ties. We have computers. And here comes this upstart Apple. And Apple fundamentally changed the game and they took and, and look how far left we are now. I think, could, I, I think you could make the argument that Steve Jobs was the catalyst for the radical left and the Democrats to come in and sweep into power. He may have been the blue wave that brought big tech to the crest where they are now. And if, if, if we can just think about that for a minute, might it be that Elon is the beginning surge of a red wave? Elon is this new technology that's coming in. And I think what you're going to see is just like Apple became this hardcore left leaning, you know, epitome of, of wokeness, then so too might Tesla become this epitome of the right. And you can kind of see it happening. Like all these people on the left are so afraid of him. Oh, he's a terrorist. Oh, my God, I can't believe he's doing these things. To Twitter. He's going to kill people like, you know. If it follows the same cycle, I think there's a real case you're going to see a hardcore right turn. And and I see this on the fringes. Like I was telling uh, Paul and these guys last night, you know, when you see, when you see, like, I listened to Tim Cook and not Tim Cook, but Tim Poole, and it seems like those guys are taking a pretty hardcore right turn. It mm-hmm. seems like the youth today are taking a pretty big right turn. I think Nick Fuentes is taking a big right turn. I think Kanye is taking a pretty big right turn. And I think that there's people in this place. I made the argument last night that I think by 2030, you're going to start to see homeless people just being wrapped up and taken away. Like there's so much crime. People are getting sick and tired of it. And not only will, it's probably unfair that it'll happen, but I think that these large centers of homeless people like in you know Portland and stuff like this, you know, we saw it with the riots. I, I think that you're going to see these younger people that, that get upset about it and get pissed off. And I think you're going to see people calling for people to be rounded up and taken away. And this is this right turn, this sort of – I hate to use this term, but a cleansing right wave that that moves out the wokeness. You know, They've been trying to get rid of it for a while, and it seems to be intensifying. And I think that the same way we saw the blue Democrats being born through Apple, we're now seeing this red wave be born through Tesla. What do you guys think?
1: Well, that's a lot to unpack in a rant. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Um, you know, one thing I would say from uh, the tech perspective was that when Apple came around, uh, you know, their, their proprietary system, and they always have been, uh, and it was one of those things where, you know, the open source, uh, communities and everything like that, uh, they were kind of the antithesis of that. Uh, and it kind of propelled, a, you know, a lot of the computer manufacturers to end up going open source uh, and stop these proprietary contracts and all of these things. Uh, so I don't know that it was the beginning of kind of the, the blue wave type idea. Um. Yeah, it, because, you know, Steve Jobs, he was he was an innovator kind of, I mean, you know, he, he stood on the shoulders of giants for sure. Uh, and I don't, and I think that was just a, an emerging marketplace. Mm. And, and so there was, there was this, you know, competing ideals in this emerging marketplace. Um, I think the technology was then kind of ba- It kind of backboned this movement. Because as much as we were talking about echo chambers before, I think you know this kind of created the, the modern echo chambers that kind of led to this woke kind of movement. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if you could call that a catalyst. So and that's just the first part of the rant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I I could I could see that there's. You know there's definitely a movement on twitter for you know obviously people who've been banned are coming back all of these things uh and but i don't know that it's going to end up in this in this massive shift in in national identity i think i would and i would you know bet 10 cents on this i think it ends up in more of a national divorce type situation
3: mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is interesting, I was thinking about Jobs and, and Musk and one area that they're similar is to your point, ben, of, you know, Jobs being, you know, kind of an inventor. I think the same thing would be said of Musk, like he's kind of this person, like he didn't start Tesla, he didn't start, you know, Twitter, he didn't start any of this stuff. He He came in and sure, he's done stuff and he's maximized and he's had influence but it's not like he was the inventor so he too is standing on the shoulders of giants to have this influence that that is happening and you know george I, I can see where on some levels the celebrityism that came around jobs like for the first time a ceo of a company is now a celebrity someone that pop culture respects and honors and in that way, it ushered in more of this maybe blue thinking, this more liberal thinking, because now you're starting to see celebrity outside of sports and, 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 and television and entertainment, and you're now seeing it in business. And that business, you know, good business was aligning to the more liberal agenda, right? Like traditionally, it was always bad business um, if you're at least in those those camps of celebrity and sport and whatnot to, to you know being more conservative in those spaces is always seen as a negative so sure he ushered in some sort of 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 quote unquote democratic blueness if you want to call it that into into that space and elon you know is maybe now saying okay cool we can go this other direction now and you know you can be this powerful person and, and buck the agenda because that's kind of what jobs is doing right the agenda of the the red the, the reaganism and all of that like he was kind of bucking that system so in the same way we see in the trench system and someone's coming in and, and bucking it, whether it's red or blue, yeah, it's kind of all the same at the end of the day on my, from my perspective, like they're not really letting people have that much power uh, on some levels. Like it's still just kind of this, these, these uh, puppets of what's really happening. But I think what's interesting is this correlation. And this is something that I was, I was watching um someone that I respect this video. They're talking through this idea that, you know, if we were to go back out uh, to the eighteen fifties, right before the Civil War, you had this really interesting movement taking place between the Democrats and the Whigs. And and the Republicans weren't on the scene yet. And at that time, there was a lot of conversation around you know ending slavery, but there are these extreme abolitionists. Like and think about that statement alone. Like today, if you're like, Oh, you was an extreme abolitionist, like like what he wanted, you know, freedom for people like what's extreme about abolition. But there were these groups and they, they were not getting any movement uh, politically, so much so that Lincoln didn't want to be associated with them. And they that, they were the Republicans. And so the first time he ran for Senate, he didn't align with them and he lost. And I'm not I may be getting some of my history a little bit off, but it's interesting because he then decides to align with the Republicans and he gains the presidency. And, and and joining in on trying to bring in some moderate conversation. like He didn't run on the extreme abolitionist kind of agenda. He ran on a moderate abolitionist agenda to get elected. And today, do we see the same thing happening with free speech? And by no means am I trying to say that I can't say something equating it to slavery. I know these are very vastly different things. Yet, there is definitely control being had. And there's those that are the extreme free speechers, right? The Alex Jones, the Elon Musk's and whatever. And like this next movement that's going to take place, is it going to come from a third party? Is it going to come out of something that doesn't really we see? And will it follow the agenda of the extreme free speech or are we going to find some moderate free speech coming about? I don't know. What do you guys resonate in that?
1: I don't know, something about this isn't sitting right with me attaching it to red and blue. Yeah. Mm. Uh, partly because I, I agree with you, Jason, in in the sense that it's more of a uniparty system when you when you back up and look at you know policies and how that's changed over the years. Um and you know the alignment of, of the money situation I, I think is perhaps why why I'm, I'm not so sold on either direction of this and I think this is much more driven by uh, the profit incentive than it is from a political type agenda I don't know still thinking about it
3: <laughs> how, yeah, much, in- how much of the free speech I'm just curious like how much of the free speech thing do you think is going to become more of an agenda item? Whether it's the red or some other, but like more something we see in politics, that we have, we should have the right to free speech, because that's in question on some levels. I I think like we're seeing this really kind of come up right now. Like, what can you and can can you not say? And I think Elon taking over Twitter was this idea of like the free speech movement, right? He's going to open up the forums. He wasn't going to cancel people anymore. So are we seeing a free speech movement begin and should there be a free speech movement is our is our speech even in question right now
0: That's interesting to think about you know is is it a wedge issue is it is it immigration is it abortion is it hey free speech you guys fight about this you No know, I think that there's something to be said about you know what speech can do like what happens to the groups out there if Twitter is a if people are allowed to say whatever they want. I mean, was there was there really like how much of the censorship was having an effect on the reality of people's lives on Twitter? You know, was it was it really affecting that people? Was it just affecting a few people online or was it was it truly affecting the way people think? I don't know.
1: Yeah, those were hard measurements to make i you know i'm sure hindsight will probably be 2020 the further we we move down this timeline um i i think if depending on who you pulled you would get you know both sides of that answer um you know there would be people who say by the elimination of all of these alex jones and donald trump and all of these things now you remove that those people from the conversation now you know, back to the echo chamber, now it just becomes an echo chamber. To what degree was that of reality that was actually impacting people's lives? It was a very interesting question. Um, and I guess, you know, you can measure that in quite a few different ways. Uh, you know, the policies that have been enacted, um, you know, what sort of, you know, this whole new speech type idea that we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Uh, And I would say, you know, just as an intuition, I would say it definitely affected the narrative. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, back where this conversation started, the emotional aspect of of the consumerism that that we've moved into, you know, you had all of these large conglomerate companies, you know, your Disney's, you had all of these places where now they were very much promoting this agenda. Um, So what sort of, you know, uh, how much does that impact the individual on a day-to-day basis? That would be a hard thing to quantify, I think. But worth thinking about, for sure.
0: Yeah, you know, it, I th- I think it goes back... I, I think we can show, at least correlate, that social media has been used to foment uprisings. If we look at sure the... Right, so Spring. so if the Arab Spring, I'm sure there's some things that like uh, Indonesia, I think I read some things. So, if we know it can work, if we know people pay billions of dollars to be on the board to influence what's said in other countries, if we know that some of these social media companies are defense contractors, it kind of correlates that it works. So, if we can use that as a foundation, then I, I think we can say, yeah, Twitter does have a a more than minimal effect on how people view their country, how people view authority. So, so yeah, I, I think that in that, looking back on those aspects of it, that if Elon Musk were to allow free speech, it would change the way we see discourse in this nation. Like, I tweeted, I, 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 why couldn't there be you know, I, I tweeted this to Elon. Not that he'll ever read it, but you know, why? Could, you know how they have the eight dollar check mark. Like, what if they had one once a month debates where there could be a poll that goes out? Who do you want to see debate this month? How about Mehdi Hassan versus Nick Fuentes? You know, how about Jordan Peterson versus Eric Dyson? Like, if you you could set this up and people would love it, and you mm-hmm. could now begin to teach discourse. On a fundamental national level, in a way that's respectful, meaningful, and can actually solve problems.
1: I, good points for sure. And I think you know the ability to have those sort of public debates, like we were talking about earlier. You know, we've been removed from that. You know, the the idea that these you know intellectual behemoths would get together and hash out ideas. Right. Um, it, it's just something that's pretty foreign to the vast majority of our consumer-based society.
3: I think uh, Lex needs yeah, to be the moderator of that, by the way, George. I'm sorry? Let's, let's get Lex Friedman as the moderator of the debate. Like, <laughs> he'd be an incredible debate moderator, just like going right at people, like, you know? But yeah, it's interesting. I don't think we're that far away from seeing some of those conversations starting to be had.
1: Well, I think they're they're happening, but it's, the, it, it's not necessarily them actually happening, it's them being broadcast in mass, yeah. in mass, right? And I, you know, to George's point, and you know, Twitter it does stand out a unique opportunity to facilitate something like that. And that would be a, a very, I, I would be full for that idea. That would be awesome. I would subscribe to that. I would subscribe to that too. You hear that, Elon? <laughs> <laughs> on the same token, uh, you know, I, I do does he have the ability to do something like that is, is a different question. I mean, you could argue and say, yeah, he owns the company so he could do it. But I mean, in, in terms of making it a huge thing. Yeah. I guess, you know, if you look at, did you guys see his, uh, his poll for if Donald Trump should be reinstated?
0: 70% it got, right. You know, it was
1: actually very much closer than that, but it got, it garnered, you know, uh, what was it? hundred. Or no, it was 10 million votes. Whoa. Yeah, so 10 million people weighed in on this. So, you know, there's something to be said there for sure. If all of a sudden 10 million people were aware of something like this and watching it go down, I mean, does that elicit some change? I think potentially, yeah. But we're also talking, you know, 10 million in verse 350 million in this country is kind of a drop in the bucket, too how many people are really getting you know their you know their daily dose of propaganda or information or conversation from a twitter you know i i think those would be interesting numbers to be had but hmm. yeah that's a great idea i would i would subscribe for it
0: yeah i i, I mean it's even if he couldn't do it himself, just him, you know, suggesting it or, you know, I, like, I, you know how many advertisers, like, hey, Elon, you want your advertisers back? Have debates. <laughs> they would flock to that. You know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah. m- maybe because, you know, those, di- those debates are going to touch on the topics that are
0: highly sensitive. Could it's you imagine a debate about vaccines brought to you by Pfizer? Oh, boy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what that sounds
1: like. Yeah. So, you know, back to him having the ability to do it, where does that get kind of shut down? You know, all of a sudden, if you're pissing off, you know, those types of people, the amount of alignment, you know, Section 230 all of a sudden gets a little bit of an update.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. It's a good point. But yeah, it's, it's, I, I think that there's, there is, And maybe that's, maybe this is exactly what people are worried about. Maybe this is, you know, maybe this is what people are afraid of is that the, the, I think you've said it before, Ben, that technology is not good or bad. It's a tool and it can be used for either technology doesn't care what it's used for, you know, and it can be, it can be used to liberate or it can be used to constrain. It can be used to tie something up or it can be used to free them. Mm -hmm. And I, it comes, down to, it comes down to us as people. It comes down to us as people that are willing to start parallel economies. Those of us that are willing to be called conspiracy theorists. Those of us that are willing to go way out on the branch and try to stand there. You know, it's these ideas. You know, Paul and I last night were talking about important people. And we brought up the idea. We, we brought up Tor's video and how he was able to stand in front of all of us via video and talk about, hey, here's these things that I did. Here's here's the situation I put myself in. And we were talking about how, you know, I think Paul said something like that's staring the demon in the face and not blinking, you know, in in the in a a video that I saw him when when I was speaking to him. And he told me about how he went away to prison and how he had faced the courtroom after he got out of prison. He went back and apologized to his ex-girlfriend's father for putting him in that position, you know, and it's like, dude, that is I think, hey, Paul, are you there? Yeah, I disappeared for a minute, but I'm back now. What 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 were you saying was the fi- the highest form of empathy? Can you can you reiterate that that topic a little bit last night? Like the highest form of empathy.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's the ability, or you know, to um to truly put yourself in in another one's you know position. You know, and so when we're talking about Tor. And I, he in his video he didn't like get into what he did that sent him to prison, but um, you had interviewed him before, and so you were sharing a little bit of that and and how he was able to, you know, really look at everybody that was in that courtroom while you know when he was being sentenced, and 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 see everybody, you know, based on what you were telling me, right? So yeah. and be able to see everybody as as being a victim. Of his, whether it was, you know, like whether it's the people on the other side of the aisle who were supporting, supporting, you know, the real victims in in the things that he did, or even like, you know, his own families, you know, his own family and friends that, because of his actions, you know, he in a, in a way victimized them too. And so to be able to to kind of see that and and to understand, you know. What all these people are going through because of your actions and then own up to those things you know own them 100 percent, you know it's a very very powerful tool you know it, it shows that you know it's, it's a person that has you know um uh, you know a depth that very few have
0: yeah we were we were talking about this idea of empathy, Paul, and this idea of radical change and this idea of speech. And one of the ideas we had come up with, we were talking about Twitter and Elon. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if something, if Twitter rolled out like a monthly debate series where two serious people were going to go head to head and talk about some of the biggest ideas of our time. Like, you know, maybe you have Jordan Peterson versus Eric Dyson talking about the idea of... um you know, racism, or you have like just these just these people that thoroughly understand the concept of language and genuinely care about solving problems. Wouldn't that be something that Twitter or one of these huge multinational social media companies could do and really create positive change?
2: I, I mean, I think it, it sounds like it, it would be interesting to to watch or to listen to, but you know, when I look at social media companies. And I look at like, you know, news networks, I I kind of think that, you know, in some ways, you know, by their their algorithms that they're trying to control the narrative. And so when you have people that are like arguing um, you know, against you know, racism or corporate dominance or whatever it may be or the rights of workers, you know, then I think that's gonna be a turnoff to a lot of people who pay the bills at, you know, at Twitter. And, you know, or Instagram, you know, how you know, I think they, those, you know, corporations are generally on the wrong side of public opinion. And so when you, you'd have to really like, you know, the, the topics would have to be like pretty narrow, right. You couldn't get into like what was really, you know, plaguing the world.
1: yeah that 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 was kind of where i was that where my thought process went to too is you know what sort of things are going to be allowed to into what extent um that's i i think it could work because he did privatize it um but i don't know where that money came from to privatize it i think that would be an important factor in that equation um you know who's really footing the bill because Elon didn't put up his own money to do it. You know, he was like, you know, there, it came out that what, uh, Larry Ellison gave him a couple billion dollars, a couple other people chipped in some billions of dollars, you know, who are all those people, what are their interests and what's their, their end goals with this idea? Well, I mean,
2: like that money gets paid back through advertising, right?
1: Theoretically, I mean, that's a lot of money, right? Well, I mean, it's part of Twitter historically ran at a, oh, sorry, you broke up, Paul. What no, were you no, saying? No,
2: no, no, I'm good. Go
1: ahead. Keep going. Uh, I was going to say, historically, Twitter was running at a deficit, you know, for the longest and longest of times. I don't even know if they ever were posting <clears throat> profits. Um, it was always the promise of profits. For the longest time, when it first came out, they struggled to even figure out how to monetize the thing. I mean, it wasn't it was like seven, eight years after Twitter came out where they actually had monetization of ads and things like that, that they were able to get into the platform. Um, So how much money does Twitter actually make would probably be an important factor in that equation.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't go on Twitter. I don't know (laughs) a lot about it.
1: I was there from pretty much the beginning on Twitter. I think my account was registered in 2000. Or that was my second account. was
2: 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is it enjoyable,
0: Ben?
1: Oh, I've never actually used it for what people use Twitter for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. There's some interesting ideas like dead internet theory. Like, you know, there's only like a very small percentage of people that even are on the internet that are even on active and the majority are all bots.
1: Right. I think, think about. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we see Twitter and social media and, and news and all this stuff. Um, how many people are actually really participating is a, is a very interesting question because, you know, if a, the loudest one percent's on there and just making a ruckus, all of a sudden they sound like, you know, they're the majority of people because they're out there making a ruckus, where in reality, it's a fraction of the, of the population. Well, it's, like why- that, it's
0: like that news crew that like, just films like eight people, but it looks like it's a riot, but then you pan back and there's only eight people. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. I mean, on some levels, I think that's the rise of social influencers. Like, the only way they kept this thing going is to say, oh, certain people are going to be able to make money and, and they're going to be the ones you want to follow because the average person isn't going to create enough content to keep me entertained. Right? Like, let's be honest, you can only see other kids' pictures of their children for so long as like, this is. I fucking love Facebook, right? It's an entertainment thing. And at some point you have to pay your entertainers. And I think that's where you see the rise of social influencers is, again, it became this cool thing. And it was like, you could do it all on your own, but like freaking China figured that out with TikTok and how quickly they could get, you know, people to adopt a brand new social platform with built-in entertainers and, a, and a, the ability to pay them. So everyone flocked to that. And, and it's really interesting how it, without, without social influencers, people would stop getting on Instagram because they don't really care about their shit. They care about the influencer shit. That's who they follow. That's who they're engaging with. I, w- I would say that's, that's the bulk majority of content that, that goes viral is through these you know influencers. And about that content,
0: what's the point? I I would challenge Hmm. what, like, viral. I'm not sure anything really goes viral by itself hardly anymore. And the people that are influenced, they're no longer – it used to be, it seems to me, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me there was an organic process. Back in the day when you had full access to your 500,000 followers or your 1,000 followers, back in the day when you could post a video and all your followers would see your stuff, you had an opportunity – to organically become an influencer. Now you have to buy that spot the same way you have to be an anchor, the same way you have to be part of this click that like it's, it's, it's almost like it's been captured. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and that's, you know, that's why TikTok actually rose so fast is because their algorithm um, was heavily weighted for, you know, new people to the platform Ah. to be put in front of multiple eyes and have that opportunity to go viral that was their algorithm was to you know basically boost up all of these new upstarts and so as somebody who wanted to be a social influencer now became very easy to become go viral on tiktok but it was all artificial so they took kind of the different path instead of having people pay for the spot they decided that we'll just make everybody have a piece of that spot and then you know uh I, i their whole business model was data harvesting. It wasn't actually, you know, generating money from ad revenue, or something like that.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how, if, how, how controlled the algorithm is, like it, you know, maybe, maybe it's just wishful thinking to, to wish that, Hey, let 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 it be meritocracy. Let let's see what people want to see, and then the argument is that is well, everyone just wants to see: flat Earth and conspiracy theories. So we have to show them CBS News and CNN, you know.
1: <laughs> and you know, it, it is kind of uh, an entirely manufactured thing these days. And those algorithms, I mean, uh, uh, what's this? Uh, Zuckerberg was on uh, Joe Rogan, right? And he very explicitly said, "Oh yeah, we." we fine tune these things in X, Y, and Z different ways in order to, you know, create that narrative and create what what sort of content people are actually exposed
3: to. Enhancing so our experiences, right? I mean, again, so then right. we were like, well, okay. Yeah, I want my experience enhanced. So, you know, that's the consumeristic mentality of I'm just gonna sit here and consume and make it better for me. And I'll keep giving you whatever you know you can harvest my data because i don't really think about it so here you go keep making it better for me i'm okay with it
1: and at some level people have completely sold out to that right you know i think the vast majority of people probably at some level have just accepted that reality is the reality that we live in
3: yeah all the while it's interesting china is using TikTok. they like their children all they show children is like educational materials.
1: Right. And they actually limit the amount limit, of time that can yeah, be like used. Like
3: a per day. time limit on yeah. children versus what they're doing. To, like, so again, TikTok's an interesting one. Again, looking at its level of influence and like what's really going on kind of behind the scenes there.
0: Yeah. It blows my mind to think like, here's, here's a stat from my, from my channel. In the last year, I have over 96,000 hours of watch time. Like that's years. Like that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, if the one person watched for years, I get no dollars, but like you have 96,000, like someone has watched 96,000 hours of your content. You get nothing. That seems a little sinister to me. You know what I mean? Like that's working for free, but you know, it's, it's, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a micro channel. There's people that have, you know, probably millions of hours of watch time. And it just, it blows my mind to think about the, the, the how much content is out there. Like it, it is kind of amazing to think that people could sift through these billions of hours of content and find some things. You know what I mean? I guess, I guess you have to have, if you're one of these companies, like, I guess you don't have to, like, I don't know. Well, it, it's interesting, just the sheer magnitude
1: you have to have an algorithm at some level,
0: right? Yes, um, yes, yes. Now
1: what that algorithm entails is an entirely different animal altogether. Right. Uh, you know, to your watched hours point, you know, uh, like the Tim Pool cast or whatever, I think I've seen them have some 40,000 people watching that live and that goes cool. on for a couple hours. So there you go. That's yep. 800,000 hours in one episode of content that's being consumed. Um, wow. Wow. So, you know, these are big numbers. And I think we as humans are really terrible with big numbers to begin with. And and so I think that's where, you know, there's kind of it's it's a little scammy to your point. You know, it is you're you're getting free labor and free content, essentially. And, you know, yeah, you're giving these people maybe a percentage of two of the actual potential revenue that could be had. And this goes back to you know the idea of, of you know having different parallel structures and setting up different marketing models and business models that would be able to outcompete these. Because now, if you can, if you can take that and give it back to the individuals, now all of a sudden you know all of that becomes really big revenue for people, uh, and 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 it's not filtered off and shipped off to shareholders.
3: So, so think about this. Here's an interesting way to, to look at this that came on my radar recently. Ari uh, Ari Shafar, I think is how you say his last name. He's uh, and um, he had a special on Netflix that came out about a year ago, um, and he just released one, and he went to YouTube to release it.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: instead of getting like Netflix to like put out his special. He went straight to to YouTube and just released the entire special for free on YouTube. His Netflix special got somewhere around a million views, um, so didn't you know did okay, but like a million people—that's not great for something you know a, a special on on Netflix. On YouTube, in the last three weeks, he's gotten 4.2 million views mm-hmm. of oh his content. So instead of going through like the gated, like oh I got a Netflix special, how cool, right? I mean he's a known art, he's a known comedian. So obviously he already has a, his channel has hundred and ninety one thousand subscribers. The thing about that, he doesn't even he's got almost two thousand subscribers. That's not sorry two hundred thousand subscribers. So that's nothing in the YouTube land. And he puts out his special for free and he gets four million views. So right. what do you? And, and,
1: well, how much? And then how much revenue does he does he get off of that?
3: Right, and I'm sure he's making some off of it, you know his channel and commercials and whatever. So he's making some, but probably not, you know. So, but what do you do? Do you have Netflix write the check and you put out something and you know only a million people are gonna see it? Or do you put the bill and put it out on YouTube knowing you have a far better chance of reaching millions of people? Right,
1: and I think we're, we're seeing that movement. There was another uh, comic, Andrew Schultz, who did something yeah. very similar. Um, And, but instead of just releasing it for free first, he set it up behind a paywall on his own website and he raked in bank, lots and lots and lots of money. And because, you know, everybody who was buying, I think it was something, I I wanna say it was under 20 bucks, might've been 15 bucks or something like that. But you know, that was all his money. Mm -hmm. And then after that, he released it onto YouTube to the tunes of, I, I think it's over 10 million some views.
3: So, so that's yeah. a, like disruptor piece, right? Kind of coming back to like using these platforms, using this content, using the fact that we know people like, how do you begin to play the game where you're able to start getting, you know, engagement and exposure without having to play by, you know, play by the traditional rules.
0: I seen, you know, who else I saw? I like this guy, that kid, Luke Radowski does. We are change. And he has, you know, I think over a hundred thousand subs, He's not monetized on his YouTube channel, but he, he went, you know, I've been watching him for, he's going for a long time and he's always been raising money and stuff. And I would say last year he did something similar to what you said, Ben, he keeps his YouTube channel and he makes a video every day, but he also put up his own website with a, with a subscription, like five bucks a month. And so he'll make one video for YouTube. And then it's half of that video is like a commercial for his site. Like, look, Here's what I'm talking about today. Here's what I'm going to talk about on my website where you can come and see all this stuff. And he found a way to use YouTube as a, his own commercial for his site. And then he funnels the people back over to that site where he does his, his better, more, more uh, caretaken videos and stuff like that. So I think what you're saying, Jason, is that that can be the system. You can use these giant platforms, get the views, and then get a percentage of those people to come to your website which would be on Ben's server, and then Which we could have doing. that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and we could have them come behind the the paywall over there. You know, you know, you could even do something like um, Rockfin, where you know, if if people pay five bucks and they get all our content for free, something right. like that. You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: Or we can start a uh, psychedelic roundtable OnlyFans. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hey. I don't. I don't Found know that we're
1: going to get that many subscribers. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Jason's pr- kind of pretty, but the rest of us, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. No, I, so, you know, that's the model that I, I see really working right now for, you know, just kind of how do you how do you get a part of this uh, and how do you retain ownership of this? And I, that is, you know, you have a, all roads lead to El Dorado, which El Dorado is your own website with your own paywall where you can, then manage and have direct contact and access to every single one of you know your followers, your fans.
3: So is that the path to back to free speech? Is that how we figure this out? Like, do we say, you can say whatever you want on your own site and people will have to go there to listen to you, but you should be able to espouse thoughts and ideas on the traditional platforms. But to like hear the real thing, you gotta go behind the paywall. Like how do, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like this, this free speech thing, I've been curious thinking a lot about, like, what do we do with it? And how, how much of a concern is it?
1: Well, I think that's definitely, you know, that's a path to enable free speech, um, at localized levels. Uh, you know, and I think that's probably the most straightforward path that we have available to us. Uh, if, you know, because once you start getting into this, you know, conglomerations of Twitter or Facebook or what have you, um, you know they've already you know section 230 kind of you know was the beginning of this but i you know there's been a lot of talk trying to convert these things into like a public utility type idea Mm -hmm. um so i think you know the decentralizing of the you know of these massive of all the content and then putting it behind your own paywall and then you know it 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 kind of returns things to a meritocracy much more, much more of a meritocracy than the algorithm is going to afford you. Because now if people really enjoy your content what well, you have to say, yeah, they'll sign up, you know, they'll pay that five bucks a month to get all of the content, you know, that, that we all post, um, because people find value in what we talk about and how we talk about it. Uh, and it's definitely, uh, a model to, uh, you know, not give away all of your content and work for free for, you know, like to George's point point, having that 96,000 hours. Imagine even 10% of it ended up, you know, behind the paywall for you, George.
0: And that, that's, that's the same thing with subscribes to our Patreon. It's the same method, only that's someone else's site as well.
1: Right. And they can shut you down. Yeah. And absolutely. And, and have, you know, so they've yeah. created bad a bad precedent. And so then, you know, what's the solution for that? Well, you have your own, you have your own server you have your own website you have your own paywall um you know there's still the the problem of a payment processor you know they're like uh for instance visa and mastercard shut down wikileaks right
0: right
1: um so there's still ish- issues like that but there are alternatives to that you know cryptocurrency is one of them uh and you can convert cryptocurrency on the fly from whatever currency comes in and offload it to us dollars to you know, euros to whatever you want. Um, so there's there's solutions for that. And I think you, it, that type of model is basically the most effective model. If you want to be kind of like a, a small mom and pop shop podcast.
2: So. Yeah. Um, so Jason, like, how, how do you define free speech?
3: It's a really good question. I don't, <laughs> know, I don't know. I don't know if I have a definition for it yet. I've been um in your mind are there limitations to speech yeah i mean i think you know harming another human being is is a boundary right so so words that would harm another person or or incite violence to another person um feels feels like an edge <laughs> of free speech um but yeah i i don't know what, what do you I mean I'm curious what your thoughts are paul um well i mean I, I don't think um
2: I don't think free speech is you know and, i mean basically like with, like what you just said like it's it's not limitless right you can't say anything you want to say right and 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 you know we've had there's case law that you know that says that you can't just go out there and espouse um, you know, speech that promotes violence uh, or destruction. Um, but then, you know, where do you beyond What's that stuff? The line gets pretty blurry. You know, beyond there, for me, as to what is an acceptable free speech, and I think it goes back to what is responsible speech. Um, you know, there's there's definitely. A lot of irresponsible speech out there that has caused people to to get uh you know banned from social media platforms but i don't know if 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 the first amendment you know would not protect them and their speech so it kind of goes back to responsible speech i think is where the battleground is now
1: So uh, my kind of articulation of it that I've kind of thought through for the years is, you know, my freedom or my freedom of speech, uh, you know, extends until it negatively impacts somebody else's freedom or freedom of speech. But that's not the whole statement. And then the next part of that statement is that's where the conversation needs to begin and happen. And I think... If we if we have the place for that conversation to happen, I think that's where you know that that fuzzy line that you're talking about. I think that's where you know it can it can kind of be hashed out to a certain extent, right?
2: You know, like inciting riot, right? That's a suppression yeah. of right.
1: right. You're removing people's um, freedom and, and ability to have free speech, uh, and so you know that shouldn't be allowed. Uh, you know, but when I've you get into t- jail for say what
2: something I've gone to jail for
1: you incited of a, a riot
2: inciting a riot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What was the riot?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, but it's, it's like, it, and when I reflect on the things that I was saying, you know, I, I didn't think that it was as bad as they were making it up. Um, which, which again, it's like, you know, the lines are blurred. Mm -hmm. right it's like it's mostly rooted in interpretation
1: right and who becomes the arbiter of that right
2: yeah so yeah i mean you know but but you know what i was saying was irresponsible yeah for sure a little bit but was i inciting the riot i don't know it's still one of you know this is 20 something almost 30 years ago 30 years ago and, uh, you know, I still think about that when I hear people talk about speech, like what's, what isn't free, speech, what's protected and what isn't protected?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: right? Because it's subjective. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of inciting a riot, you know, was it just like a couple of people who, you know, were kind of being hooligans or did you actually start a full-fledged riot? No, it was a, it was a full-fledged deal. Oh, Okay. It was, yeah. <laughs> Respectable. Yeah, all right. Man. Check that one off the bucket list. Yeah.
2: yeah, it was in a handful of you know it was it was a lot of people. There was definitely involved.
0: But Paul, Paul, where were you on January sixth?
2: I, I was attending a Donald Trump. Uh-huh. Washington D.C. No. no, it was for it was uh it was in San Diego. It was the it was the International Monetary Fund. Nice. Was having nice. a, it was a uh, like a melding of the mines. and uh, a bunch of people showed up. I was one of them, and and things got a little crazy.
1: Well, I think you know, you also decided to pick. The one target that probably is gonna be the most oppressive toadstep, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you know, it, it, it goes back to speech, right? Because I was mm-hmm. the guy in the cop car car swearing at the police going, I can say whatever the fuck I want. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, no, you can't. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, I'm coming up on a hard break right here, but uh, you know, maybe before we before we end it or land the plane, maybe we can go around and and say where people what you got coming up and where people can find you. You want to start us off, Ben?
1: Sure. Um, Benjamincgeorge.com to find out what I'm up to. Uh, some interesting podcasts coming up. Uh, Paul and I are going to be talking about some dark skies in here soon uh george we got a you know a panel coming up here um i've had some interest from some other people uh from the business world who want to have some chats about you know kind of similar topics to what we we talked about tonight uh and of course i will be uh hopefully by my birthday here releasing some more hard stuff about the Terry Libre project and and building a conversation around that so that's exciting
0: yeah it is exciting what jay what you got coming up my friend Oh man, uh, yeah!
3: Check stuff out on experienceintegration.com on Instagram at experienceintegration. And right now, I uh, just got my first episode of Dad Balls podcast recorded, so nice. going to be getting that dropped here soon. Got to talk to an incredible dude with some dad balls. Was in the military and um, really went through some some pretty crazy stuff in his life. So excited to to be getting to have that drop here in the near future.
0: That's, that is exciting. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Paul, what do you got some irons in the fire? What do you got coming up?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, not, not really too much. And I'm doing this thing on Sunday, and um, am working on the Hawaii Dark Sky Project, which we're going to have some stuff coming out here in the next couple of weeks. And when we do, I'll let you guys all know.
0: Well, I, I thought I remember hearing a while back there may be some psychedelics that you wanted us to be guinea pigs for. Is that how's yeah. that operation looking?
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's coming along. Yeah, it's looking yes. really good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> all
0: right. Well, fantastic, gentlemen. I, I uh I'm I'm super thankful for all your times. I really enjoy the conversation, and I I think that we uh, have a good time here, and I hope that we're able to at least make it entertaining for a few people and maybe even inspire so ladies and gentlemen thank you for hanging out today we'll be back next sunday in the psychedelic roundtable. until then check everybody out on their links and on their podcast we'll see you on sunday Aloha.